As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the 3-0 Show, part of the Athletic Baseball Show. It is Thursday, October 20th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. Both league championship series in progress. Two games already in the books for the NLCS. We'll talk about that series after we talk about Game 1 of the ALCS. That series will resume right around the time many people get a chance to listen to this podcast later in the day on Thursday. Uh, You know, the way I was looking at game one between the Yankees and Astros was that the Yankees actually got enough results-wise from Jamison Tyon to hang around. That's about as much as they could have hoped for, given that going up against Verlander, they were giving up a lot in that starting pitching matchup. Uh, But he was dodging raindrops. This was not a dominant performance by any stretch of the imagination. It was four to third innings, no strikeouts, three walks, and a lot of hard-hit balls that just weren't finding gaps. So... Uh, As you look at this game, it kind of played out the way we expected it to, where the Astros were favored, the Astros held serve, but the Yankees at least had a couple of chances to possibly steal it. Yeah, and I love Clark Schmidt, and I thought that was a good place to use him. In retrospect, maybe it was a better time to use Frankie Montas, uh, because maybe then you could have gotten two innings out of Montas and maybe avoided at least one of those runs that Clark Schmidt gave up. But uh, Montas gave up a run to himself, and, um, you know, that's not the Yankees' strength is their middle relief or their uh, B team in the bullpen, basically. Um, And so on the other side, you saw the Astros' strengths. You saw Justin Verlander dominate. Uh, You saw their best relievers come forth. there is a little bit of weakness there, maybe that the Yankees can exploit. They did score runs. Uh, they score a run off of Rafael Montero, um, and uh, Montero is maybe not the scariest of those three. Uh, Presley himself has seen some up and downs in his below this year. So um, good for the Yankees to have scored a run off, run off that bullpen. Good for the Yankees that Tyon pitched them uh, four usable innings. Uh, bad result. Uh, you know, in the end, um, and uh, tough night to let Jeremy Pena uh, really shine as much as he did. 
because if Pena takes off, that top of that lineup uh, in Houston gets even better. Yeah, I think that's probably the frustrating part. If you're you're a Yankees fan, you play for the Yankees, you're looking at El Tuve, 0 for 3 with a walk. Alvarez, 0 for 2, couple of walks. Bregman, 0 for 3 with a walk. Kyle Tucker, 0 for 4. Those guys didn't get you. It was Pena. And Pena, I think, at the beginning of this season, before a couple of injuries started to slow him down, looked like he was going to have a a full-on breakout season. He had a good regular season rather than a great one, I think, because of the impact of those injuries over the course of the second half. He looks healthy again in this postseason. Had the homer, had three hard-hit balls. I mean, this is a guy that was really, he kind of came up at the perfect time for the Astros on a night where the Yankees did reasonably well against the guys that usually do most of the damage in that Houston lineup. Yeah, it wasn't a perfect season. Uh, Pena does chase sometimes. Maybe he learned over the course of the season uh, to not chase, but he can get him chasing, uh, breaking balls below the zone. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's some growth still to be had for him as a, uh, as a player. Uh, but he is also super exciting, amazing for Houston player development to be able to turn to them, uh, turn to him. But, you know, one thing that's interesting is, um, I think we rely too much on the last game to prognosticate the rest of the series. Uh, you know, this had a feeling of, you know, I was just on the radio in San Diego and they were like, does that thing seem as over as it seems, you know? And I was like, no. well, yeah, <laughs> it's one game. <laughs> one game. Uh, also, uh, as I said in our preview, I give the Yankees uh, the pitching advantage when Garrett Cole is pitching. Um, especially because he's not uh, lined up against Justin Verlander. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all that the Yankees win this one and uh, and tie it up and go back to um, New York with uh, with a tied series. Um, I I still think that Houston wins it overall, but uh, I think they can do. I think they can win the coal the coal starts. The difference between these teams, if we didn't emphasize that enough in the series preview, is small. If you like the Astros more in any or most of the categories that we care about. It doesn't mean that the Yankees can't win. It doesn't mean the games won't be close. I hope people understand that. I think the pitching matchup for game two is a great one. Luis Severino against Framber Valdez. They had a great breakdown on MLB Central on Thursday morning, kind of showing some of the differences in Severino now compared to the pitcher that he was before all the injuries. He basically missed three years, as they were pointing out, and he missed significant time this year as well with an injury. Spent time in the second half on the 60-day IL, but it's a deeper arsenal now for Luis Severino. It used to be a lot more fastball slider, and now we see more change-ups. We see occasional cutters, and even if those aren't bread-and-butter pitches, it puts that extra little bit of doubt in the minds of opposing hitters. They were pointing out that he actually throws his change-up to righties as well. It's not just the pitch that he throws to lefties. So I do like this version of Luis Severino even more than the pitcher he was before all the injuries. And he was very good, mostly with two pitches back then, too. So I I think this could be one of those spots where if you're the Yankees, you're no worse than even in this starting pitching matchup. I do think it's worth pointing out, Framber Valdez has changed over time as well. Compared to the pitcher we saw for the first time a few seasons ago, he now has a cutter that he throws about 10% of the time. And that basically makes him a four-pitch guy now, right? Sinker, curve, cutter, and a changeup for him. So these are, are two younger pitchers that have taken some steps forward kind of in this, I don't know, middle third of their career is probably where they're at right now. And 
I think toe-to-toe, this is one of the more even pitching matchups you can put together for this series. Yeah, that's why, you know, you know, Severino could could help them tie it up. I think this one, uh, people might be surprised uh, to for, for me to say that uh, the pitching matchup here might be close to, to equal. There's a lot of um, uh, focusing on the fact that Framber Valdez had uh, 25 straight quality starts. Um, I don't know. Uh, quality starts are not a metric I use that often. Um the run environment was lower this year, so it was a little bit easier to get a quality start. Um, and uh, I, I, the only thing that just that that makes me nervous about Fromber is that um, he only strikes out a few, you know, percentage points above average. Um, and uh, and so he's going to allow balls in play. Now, normally those balls in play, he did just have um, one of the the the, the highest. Uh, tracked seasons ever in ground ball rate. Um, in fact, if you look at qualified pitchers, it was the highest uh, ground ball rate ever in a single season uh, since we track ground ball rate. So 67% of those are grounders. Yeah, you know, there's still balls in play. And the batting average on balls in play every year is 300, which means that 30% of those ground balls, you know, maybe as much as a third of those ground balls that he allows could be hits. And that just allows the Yankees a chance to get in it. So, you know, Fromber's strikeout rate, for example, is 23.5%. Um, and Luis Severino's uh, is uh, 27.7%, so 28% uh, to 24%. It doesn't sound like a lot, uh, but it does represent their abilities. And in fact, uh, Severino has had much higher strikeout rates in the past. So... Um, you know, if, if he uses adrenaline and playoffs and that there is a, a velo boost you get in the playoffs of about one mile an hour, if he uses that to get back to where he used to be and strikes out a third of the batters he sees, then we're talking about a 10 percentage point difference. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that, uh, I think I prefer Severino, uh, you know, over the course of a season, give me Fromber. You know, he's going to give you a lot of innings. He's going to keep you in all those games. Very good play, very good pitcher. In one game, knowing that Severino's healthy, uh, I don't know. I think I might take Severino. Yeah, I'm with you. I actually think the Yankees can take game two. I think this goes back to the Bronx, knotted up at one. They they win one of the, the Cole starts, you know. So I, I never thought this wouldn't be a long series, but, um, you know, there are a lot of advantages that Houston has beyond that. Yeah, that would be uh, pretty surprising. Uh, do you make anything of the struggles of Jose Altuve? I mean, it goes back to the last series. Is there anything that makes you think that he's hurt or have teams just found a little bit of a, a plan of attack that's working? Like, how, how do you rectify that? Or is it just small sample noise? Well, he usually likes the up and in pitch. There are a lot of Astros that like the up and in pitch. They've developed a swing. Alex Bregman, for example, likes the up and in pitch. That's usually a pitch across baseball that is bad for the batter, but they've developed swings where they can just sort of tomahawk it and they can get that bat through real quick uh, and take advantage of that pitch. In the last series, the Mariners threw a bunch of two-seamers up and in to Altuve, and they had good results on it. So the two-seamer has more lateral movement. So, you know, when he sees a hard fastball in on his hands, Altuve thinks four-seamer up and in 
tomahawk, you know? Um, and so he's been swinging at these pitches. He's been expanding the zone. He's been swinging under pitches that are over the zone. Um, and uh, it's been working. So I would be surprised if now at this point in Altuve's career, the league has finally figured out the one thing that, you know, will get Altuve out, uh, especially after a season uh, in which he had 28 homers and looked super resurgent and, and, and great again. But uh, I do think it's incumbent on Altuve to lay off those pitches. So you may see him laying off the up and in pitch, which may make the four seam up and in more viable. And then he's like, Ooh, that's a four seam. And he swings it and hits a homer. So that's the cat and mouse game that's in baseball. But the current, the current book on Altuve is two seamers up in it. As far as other possible keys to game two, of course, yes, the starters pitching well, kind of important to either team as they try and, and figure this out. I guess the one thing that also kind of catches my eye looking back to game one and the Yankees bullpen is that they'll have Clay Holmes available. And we've been concerned that they might not be able to use him as frequently as they would like down the stretch here in the postseason just because he's been dealing with injuries. But they have their best reliever available in the end game. You mentioned before some concerns about the bridge possibly to getting the ball to someone like Holmes because of the injuries the Yankees have accumulated within that group. Uh, is there anybody that we didn't see in game one that you think could actually match up well and, and provide some help in those those middle or late innings for the Yankees if needed? Uh, uh, you know, we've seen a fair amount of their uh, their relievers that I like. Um, I, I like Loizaga, um, and I think he, he's going to be keyed for them, but we've seen him. Um I don't, I, you know, maybe, uh, Domingo Herman is a, is a secret weapon. Um, you know, in a, in a short, in a short stint, uh, you know, maybe he can throw more like 94, 95. Uh, he used to be, uh, he used to average as much as 96 in his, in his rookie season. Um, if he comes out, you know, throwing 95s and 96s, uh, with that curveball, I think he becomes a, a pretty good reliever. And he might be uh, the secret weapon because uh, there is some question about Luis Severino's length coming off that injury uh, late in the season. You know, when he came back, uh, he had a couple short stints um, and then he had a seven inning uh, at the very end of the season. So, you know, he might have the length, but uh, depending on how hard he's throwing, uh, how many walks uh, he's allowing, uh, there will be some question of how deep he can go into the game. And if you could use Herman as a bridge, it might be a good idea. Yeah, and I thought Frankie Montas was going to be really effective out of the bullpen in game one. You know, results uh, didn't quite play out that way, but I, I'm curious to see how he impacts the series as we move forward because I think he could be kind of electric in those shorter bursts given the stuff that he brings to the table when he's healthy. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's go to the NL side. That series now tied up at one, heading back to Philly. We didn't get a chance to talk about the opening game in that series yet. Zach Wheeler was phenomenal. You Darvish was really good in that game as well. And the Padres actually had a shot at the end against Jose Alvarado. Jerks and Profar led off the ninth inning with a walk. They brought Soto, Machado, and Bell to the plate. Credit to Alvarado. He got them all out. So uh, really a great pitching matchup in uh, the opening game of that series. In game two, it just looked like the wheels were falling off on Blake Snell early. And it wasn't even because of of like walks and it wasn't because of, of hard contact. It was bloop city. And then it was the, the lost ball in the sun for Juan Soto. And it just, in, in that moment, it seemed like everything was going to fall apart for San Diego, even though it was only the second inning. And the momentum swung in a huge way with those back-to-back solo homers in the bottom of the inning from Brandon Drury and Josh Bell. Like that, that was the spark that the Padres needed to keep things from really getting out of control in game two. Yeah, it was weird because Snell came out and threw something like eight 96-mile-an-hour fastballs in the first inning and just bop, 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 and he was, he was done. But they were making contact, um, and it wasn't the normal uh, Blake Snell start, which is... You know, I was at uh, game two. Um, it was funny because they were like, everybody on your feet, two strikes. You know, like, wave those towels, two strikes. With Blake Snell, I'm like, uh, you know, come on. Like, You're going to be up for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and so Snell comes out and he's like super uh, efficient and he gets all these outs. And I was like, ooh, well, this is, this is going to be interesting. Maybe Snell's just going to shove and be efficient and go eight or something crazy, you know? Um, and instead they come out and the, and the, their second chance at it, uh, all that contact starts turning into, into, into blue plays. Now the sun, uh, was difficult, uh, at one thirty. there. It was, it was 95 degrees, which I think, um, is relevant, really relevant to, uh, the offense, uh, being up in that game. Uh, but also, uh, it was relevant to the errors that were made. Uh, Soto obviously lost it in the sun. I don't know if that excuses him. I don't know. Um, I heard today on MLB Central they're saying one of the keys when it is sunny like that is to just keep looking at the sun uh, <laughs> because you keep your eyes dilated. Uh, you know, kids don't try this at home. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, yeah, he me- he messed that ball up. Uh, it wasn't great defense. I don't think defense has been a major concern for the Padres all year, so I was a little surprised uh, to see it sort of all fall apart like that. Uh, but, you know, he kept his head on, got through the inning, and uh, the fact that the bottom of the lineup, the guys who really, Josh Bell has really not been performing, uh, to see, uh, you know, a, a, a late insertion to the lineup with Brandon Drury uh, and a struggling guy like Josh Bell uh, hit some homers, and then you kind of knew Soto would want to redeem himself uh, for that. And then Manny has just been—he—he uh, he is ice cold at the plate, dude. He's just not—not not in terms of like he's cold. Like 
he is an ice cold killer. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something I don't do a lot of like, you know, body language or, you know, that sort of, oh, clutch clutch, you know, statistically has been a, a real hard thing to nail down. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. When I see Manny Machado, though, sometimes I, I get that bone too, where I'm like, that dude is clutch. Because when he steps to, I don't think he, I don't think I've ever seen him look nervous, you know? Um, and so, you know, if you got Bell and Drury going, then you feel, you feel like, okay, Soto and Machado are going to get going too. Yeah. And I think the other really good sign for the Padres, Juan Soto had three hard hit balls in this game, right? It's been a lot of walks for him throughout the postseason. It seems like it's only a matter of time before he does everything you expect him to do on a day-to-day basis. Maybe this is the beginning of that. Uh, I mean, of course, the Padres having a massive inning end up winning this game 8-5. To get six and four and two-thirds on Aaron Nola was pretty surprising because he was locating really well early. Aaron Nola looked locked in at the beginning of this start. So I, I think the the plot twist in the second inning was a, was a massive one. I saw a funny, uh, a funny stat uh, from the New York Times. Um, so Aaron Nola has thrown 10,000 fastballs in his career. Uh, nine of them have been 95.9 or faster. And three of those nine, he's thrown to his brother. <laughs> That's awesome. So, I mean, he had he had the good velo. Uh, he had the good location. I was a little surprised, uh, uh, and and it was so funny. Like Josh Bell has been uh, has been performing poorly, and he's a guy who puts balls in play. So some of it has to have been luck, right? It's just you know if he's putting balls in play and they're and he's not getting hits, that's sort of statistically we talk we call that luck. Um, you know, batting average on balls in play, that sort of stuff. Uh, he got lucky, I think. You know, like. He had a hit when he was uh, uh, right-handed that he didn't even see where it went. He, like, made contact, and he's like, what happened? Oh, I think he thought it hit the runner, or it was caught, because it was the, yeah, the sun and the shadows were so... (laughs) You're you're right, his reaction, he froze. It was a rope into the right field, but it it did on the replay, as as you kind of watched it from his angle, it had to have looked like it was either caught or that it hit the guy off first base. Right, right. So there's some luck there, though, because that, that... and then uh, I think we didn't Soto get on on like a little squibber or was that Machado? Uh, there was uh, some luck I- involved in it, but um, really good play by the the Padres. And uh, uh, you know, one nice thing about the Padres is I I consider them as having a big three when it comes to their starting rotation. Now, you might take Wheeler or Nola over any of those big three you know, depending on the exact matchup. But when you have a big three, you stay in games, right? So let's say you take Nola over Snell. I think most people would. Well, Snell kept him in the game. And then Nola didn't have a vintage Nola. So they won. So now they've stolen one. And now you would literally very easily take Musgrove over Ranger Suarez. I'm sorry. I don't mean to say that I'm not saying Ranger Suarez is bad I'm just saying Musgrove you take Musgrove (laughs) or Suarez so that's the benefit of having a big three right if you steal one against one of the first two then you flip the advantage and you can you can win one so and and get ahead so uh, I actually think the Padres may have the advantage in the next two if if they go to the kind of mix and match that I foresee 
we were talking about in game four, we're talking about, you know, Syndergaard, uh, Gibson, um, and the bullpen, which is not necessarily a strength of theirs. Uh, maybe Eflin and then the two 100 mile an hour guys. That's a decent plan. And I, I think they might go that way. Uh, for the Padres, I'm thinking it's, you could go with an opener, Tim Hill, uh, then go to Mike Clevenger, um, you know, for the lefty for for the for some of those lefties at the top of the Phillies lineup. They go to Mike Clevenger. Uh, I think Nick Martinez becomes a super important bridge for them. Um, and then I think they have three really awesome relievers at the back end to the Phillies, more like two. So uh, I think I give the Padres the pitching matchup in the next two starts. I think that's fair. I mean, I think we'd both probably take the Phillies lineup as a whole over the Padres lineup as a whole, but the gap isn't that big. Uh, Kyle Schwarber, by the way, in game one, hit one of the <laughs> longest home runs you will ever see. 488 feet. One of the longest home runs you might see anywhere. I mean, that was an absolute missile. That one got off the screen faster than most home runs get off the screen, too. It was like he hit it, and you're like, wait, what happened? Where did, where did the ball even go? What direction did he even hit that? Because it just exploded off the bat. Yeah, and I've seen, I saw the uh, home run derby with Giancarlo Stanton in it down in San Diego, oh, where uh, he was peppering that that big screen, uh, and he hit one out like around the, uh, between the screen and the, the Western Supply, the Metal Supply building. So, uh, yeah, I've seen some big homers there, and that was that was definitely belonged in that group. Absolutely absurd. That home run was hit while I was out, uh, I was fetching with Hazel. So I had the Padres radio feed on and uh, Tony Gwynn Jr. I think was the the player in the booth and he just said, man, I've never seen anyone hit a ball up there. Batting practice, <laughs> never. He knows, like he, he's been there. Like It's just one of those things where you have to appreciate uh, moments like that. And I, th- I think that's where I'm surprised looking at the game two box score, four hard hit balls all game for the Phillies. One for Schwaber, one for Hoskins, one for Harper, one for Matt Veerling. And, you know, a lot of credit is due to for, for Blake Snell, who battled through that bloop fest in the second inning, could have come undone, didn't, came back, gave him three more scoreless innings, finished with six Ks in five innings. Probably one of the more impressive five inning, four earned run allowed lines. Like the, the yeah. line does not tell the whole story there. He, he gutted that out. He kept the Phillies away from the fifth and sixth relievers in the Padres bullpen, who aren't bad. Like I thought they were going to go get him in that inning for a second. Then they didn't, which is great for them because yeah. these guys are end up being more rested. And then Nick Martinez, who you mentioned, two scoreless frames, providing that bridge to Suarez and Hader. Hader looks like he's pretty much all the way back now. I think a week ago, even watching him pitch, I had him at about a seven and a half out of ten on the the trust level. And P. Hader was like a ten out of ten, where well, game's over, Hader's pitching. Above a nine right now. He looks like he's getting it all back at just the right time. A lot of it's just command. And, you know, what you're seeing is he's dotting the top of that zone. Um, and he's not super consistent in and out. You know what I mean? Like, uh, he, he'll he'll miss along the top, but he's not missing down. You know, he's not missing an up and down. He's It's the top of the zone, whether it's in or out. Uh, so he's found, he's found it, I think. And uh, command was really the big problem. Nick Martinez is a great story. Uh, so he was, you know, it's lockout. I uh, know. I think it's uh, lockdowns. Uh, it's COVID time, and he's like looking for something to do. So he goes and um, he gets uh, what's it called? Uh, certified by Driveline. 
Because Driveline has these like trainer certification process where you can go through and like basically certify yourself as like a driveline pitching coach, you know, like you've learned the driveline, uh, you know, methods. And so he certifies himself as basically his own pitching coach. And then he uses the, the tools that driveline has, uh, to diagnose his different pitches, uh, his mechanics, uh, uses weighted balls and, and, and gains, you know, you know, two ticks on his fastball and develops a Vulcan changeup where the ball comes off your middle two fingers, the, you know, some of the famous Vulcan changeups in the past that I can remember, the number one one I remember is Kyle Loesch, uh, who used to throw a lot of Vulcan changeups for the Brewers back in the day. Um, it's a really interesting pitch because sometimes you can't command it, uh, but it, and it pops out, it's a little bit like, almost like a knuckler because it just sort of squeezes out. Um, but, uh, he seems to be able to command it pretty well. He can, he can drop it in the zone for strikes. Uh, and it has a lot of movement and, um, you know, between the, the extra velo and, um, the Vulcan change, he's really, uh, turned his career around and he, you know, he has an interesting contract. Uh, I don't know if he's going to be back on the same terms where it's like a split deal with a lot of options and this and that. And, uh, but he's been super valuable to the Padres because he's been in the rotation and he's been in the bullpen and he's been useful in both places. Yeah, the glue guys like that, I mean, they can help you get through the regular season. They can become more dangerous weapons in shorter stints in the postseason. Always nice to have someone like that. And I would agree with you. Martinez has become very important for this team. They get a 113 ERA now in the postseason. So he's been excellent for them uh, up to this point. Anything else catching your eye uh, in this series before we, we move on to some other news and notes? No, I mean... Uh... It's I I feel for Padres fans because I think they're all been waiting for Soto to go off, and uh, I believe in Soto as a really great player. The one thing that's really I think hurt him a little bit this year is uh, when they changed the balls. Uh, this year they went fully to a, a more deadened ball. Um, what we've seen is that pulled homers have gone down about fifteen percent. Opposite field homers have gone down thirty percent, twice as much. And opposite field homers are a big staple in Juan Soto's uh, arsenal. So he's gone to, uh, you know, the home run derby and come back with like a pull, more pull happy approach and gone off in second halves. So that's that's something that happened uh, the year they won the championship. Um, so for him, uh Maybe just a focus on on pulling some fly balls uh, will will get him out of this. But um, it's such an excellent approach. And when somebody has approach like that, it can be frustrating because you're like swing, you know, or you know what I mean. Like I I know that feeling. It's like with Max Muncy, right? He's hitting 180, not hitting for power, and you're like, come on, like, but he's like. When you talk to, I talked to Max Muncy and he's like, no, I've had a lot of success this way. I have to, this is my approach. I have to believe in my approach. It's going to work. And, you know, eventually he came out of it. And I think uh, Soto will come out of it too. You know, one other player I think is worth mentioning as we, we look ahead to the weekend. I think Bailey Falter might be an important piece for the Phillies. How do they use him? Is he going to be someone that works in tandem with Cindergaard either in front of Cindergaard. He's after probably Syndergaard. the name because Gibson pitched in last night. He's probably the name that comes in second after Cindergaard, you're right. 
Yeah, so I think what they get from Falter might end up being really important in that particular game because if they can scramble, if they can win a game with their you know their non-elite pitchers, that's huge for them that as might they try and the navigate the series. Way, yeah. Know? Because because they have that Nolan Wheeler advantage when Nolan Wheeler are pitching usually. And Falter is really interesting. Um I wonder how often the uh, Phillies have seen him in particular because he's got an extreme over-the-top release point that can be tough on people. Um, and so he might really be a secret weapon in that if they haven't seen him much, they're going to have a hard time adjusting to that release point. Um, I talked to Mike Morse one time after he hit a huge homer uh, to tie a game for the Giants against the Cardinals Um the that the year that they won it all and he he had a homer off of randy choate i said while they were pouring uh beer down his butt crack uh i asked him uh i asked him like what were you doing uh and he said uh i i i figured out that i was going to face randy choate and so i went down into the into the uh, into the pen into the uh, batting cage and I just had one of our our pitchers throw sidearm like Choate and so I've been taking swings off of Randy Choate down there uh, for like an inning and a half before before I actually went and, and faced him so if they can find somebody to you know either through the pitching machines or or personnel to mimic Bailey Falters over the top release point I think that might be a, uh, some good batting practice coming up in the next few days that's a skill set I wish I had. The ability to just uh, throw hey, any arm slide. <laughs> I'm going to be Randy Choate for you for a little while, you know, because that's what you need right now. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe that's why the the Giants had like 15 coaches. They just needed to have 15 different arm slots. <laughs> the Giants coaches are like the Rays bullpen, where it's, yeah. it's the arms on the clock. It's like no, we, we, you all bring something else to the table, but you also have to have different arm slots here. Yeah. When you when you Nick when you. Uh, when you go in for the interview for Giants coaching job, they ask you what your arm slot is. <laughs> <laughs> One can only hope. I think both of these series are going to be a blast over the course of the weekend. Not just playoff stuff happening right now. Shohei Otani returned home to Japan. I had reporters, of course, at the airport asking him questions. And there was one particularly notable quote from Otani who said, I have to say that August and September in particular felt longer to me than last year. He was speaking in Japanese, by the way. We were not able to play as many good games as we would like, including 14 consecutive losses, so I have a rather negative impression of this season. So that's the, the translation of what Otani said to reporters, which is exactly what a person should say based on what just happened to the Angels. I mean, you you do what Otani did over another full season. You play at an MVP caliber level. And the team around you is just spinning the tires in mediocrity despite its star power. So I completely understand his frustration. Uh, we know that his contract for 2023 is already taken care of. Right? He agreed to a deal before possibly going to arbitration. One year, $30 million, I believe, was the final figure that was thrown out there. But all of this is leading to a lot of questions about his long-term future with the Angels and the possibility of him maybe even being traded at some point during the offseason, which on the surface still seems like a long shot to me. I don't think if you're you're Perry Manassian, I don't think you want to do that. I think you'd still rather try and find ways to patch up the holes and make one more run at it before Otani hits free agency. I do think this is a pretty good indication that unless things change dramatically with the Angels, 
Shohei Otani will be wearing a different uniform in 2024 and beyond. Yeah, I think that writing has been on the wall for a little bit. When you're a talent like that, you not only want to win, but you, uh, and baseball probably, wants you in one of the biggest markets, you know, uh, just to be frank. And um, it, it, I think it would be difficult to trade for him because the the type of talent it would take to trade for him would probably come from one of these teams that hoards young talent. And why do they hoard young talent? Because it's not expensive and it's there for a long time. And so why would they trade? Like I would think of like the Rays. The Rays might have a collection of young talent to go get him. They would never do that. It's one year Rotani at $30 million. It doesn't make any sense. If the point of playing is when anything is to win, even if you only have him for a year, you can't go get Aaron Judge for a year. You're going to have to get Aaron Judge for seven or eight years at a minimum. So you can't get that impact on a short-term deal. So what other top 10 player could you get on one year? Right. It's it's so hard to get a player like that. I mean, I think he could go somewhere like the Dodgers. You know, he sure. could go somewhere like the Yankees. The Yankees have seemed to become a little bit skinflint recently. They don't want to spend over that that tax. So uh, the, the maybe the, the like, okay, so let's say it's the Giants. Okay. I don't think they have the prospects to pull it off. And the prospects they do have, you immediately just give them up? Marco Luciano. Yeah, you're going to give up Luciano and Kyle Harrison for a year of Otani? I think That's what you I'm can, wondering. I think you can do it if you think you've got a very good chance of signing him long term. And if you also accept that you know, you're going to give him a qualifying offer, right? Like As long as that's still an option. You're getting some sort of draft pick back. If we still have that system. Okay, it worked once before. Once before, Otani had a, a cap on what he could make. And so he went around and it did matter what you said to him, right? It mattered what the angel said to him. It mattered what they said about, you know, competing, about where he would live, that sort of stuff. It mattered because everybody could give him the same amount of money, right? And he chose the angels. So it's possible that he will have such a huge deal on the table from everybody that can provide that deal that it will matter what the town is like or what this what the team feels like so maybe if you're the giants you say get him in here for a year we get the year that we get we also get a year to convince him that this is the place to be you have that sort of runway which is more than a powerpoint presentation or whatever whatever it was that teams were doing to try and, and court him when he came over in the first place He's really hard to talk to. He's really hard to get access to. But one thing I do know about him that maybe not a lot of people know is he's a super geek when it comes to the pitch design and the like the just the most advanced aspects of training as a baseball player. He's really into it and he really cares. And the one thing that you could do if you're the Dodgers or the Giants is show him, dude, we're into this stuff, too. <laughs> like w- like w- like you thought you you thought you were a little annoyed you couldn't get this or this with the angels check out what we got i mean they, the the giants are definitely uh at the forefront of a lot of that stuff so i gotta think as as more people explore this and you start thinking about otani's relationships in the game you know billy epler was the gm of the angels the time that otani signed right and Billy Epler is now in New York with the Mets. So if you 
convince yourself that the Mets have enough young talent to do this. They certainly don't seem to care about what their payroll looks like, so a $30 million guy for a year is not going to bother them. What if Shohei Otani ends up on the Mets? I mean, this is a team that was really good, that wants to keep getting better, that seems like it will spare no expense to do it. So that seems kind of like the the clubhouse leader. If there were there were odds on where Otani plays in 2023 outside of Anaheim, the Mets would probably be at the top of that list as the favorite. Yeah, it's, it's possible. And it, we, we have some evidence that they are into the, the geekery as well. Uh, Chris Bassett came to uh, Oakland recently and said, the Mets have stuff that Oakland doesn't have, you know, in terms of getting me ready for the game, in terms of making me a better pitcher, you know, the the Mets are doing stuff that Oakland isn't doing. Mets had been a little bit behind, but they now, you know, said that player development and data and tech and that sort of stuff, it has been a, uh, a priority for improvement. And they've said that for three or four years running. So maybe they have actually improved it by now. <laughs> I think it's still probably more big market than small market. When we talked about Juan Soto suitors, I know uh, you and I and, and Britt were talking about Cleveland as the the dark horse, the team that could sneak in with all of its young talent and actually make a move. The key difference there is Soto is going to be on your team for more than just part of a season. And in this case, yeah, you get Otani for a full year. I find it very unlikely that Cleveland would be convincing enough to Otani as a long-term home, not because of anything about Cleveland specifically, but the organization and how they spend. I could imagine he's probably not looking at that organization and saying, that's where I really want to be. If it's not a, if it's not, it's not necessarily a small market. Houston is one of the uh, bigger markets in America. Um, But Houston as a dark horse in this uh, would be interesting because uh, I could see him saying, Hey, you know, I could be in the World Series again next year, you know, and I do think he'll have some control over this, uh, if not um, specifically because of a no trade or something. He's not he does not achieve that. Um, he will probably have some say in it. Um, and I think Houston could be attractive because they are uh, known as, you know, uh, the, the the most progressive organization when it comes to data and tech and all that. So uh, the the combination of you know, I could be in the World Series and they could maybe even make me better. Uh, I think would be pretty compelling to have. You know, back in the earlier part of the summer on one of the Friday episodes, uh, Keith Law and I were talking about Mike Trout as a possible trade piece, too, with the massive contract. At some point, if you're the Angels and you're not going to win, you move on from Trout. You make the blockbuster trade and you're probably not getting as nearly as much back in return now for him as you would have got if you traded him before the big extension, right? If you traded him Closer to the peak, I'm sure the the return would have been unlike anything we've ever seen in a trade before. But even now, I think you'd still get something that helps you in the long run back. And if the ownership change that we're expecting to happen at some point in the reasonably near future, if that happens, at least there you're working with more of a, a clean slate with your organization, right? You're not inheriting as much long term there. Like I, I think it's to me, it's more appealing to have Trout with the Angels, like if I if I were in the position of buying a team, I'd want him. I'd want to keep him and just build around him. But if you're in this kind of land of uncertainty and you're trying to think about how to make the organization better in the future, I think the case for trading him now after this healthy stretch at the end of the year, especially this might be one of your last windows to make more of a, a long-term impact by dealing him away. Yeah, I don't know how to read this. It's uh, what What are some of the examples that we've had? The Marlins, uh, after they won it all 
they got rid of all their long-term uh, contracts and then sold, right? Did I have that timeline right? Yeah, they, they had the fire sale right after a win. You're right. So they were like, hey, here's the team. But then the, that's the one of their first sales. What happened when they got a new stadium? Did they also... Yes, they sold... No, they signed players in free agency. There was a winter meetings I went to. It was the year they added Jose Reyes. They added Heath Bell. I think they had three different players. They they added that's that with were the new stadium. Significant, yeah, and and it's, it's like with the new new uniforms, all the all the stuff, and you're like, maybe this is the new era of Marlins. And then baseball. they sold the team. Those guys weren't around very long. When did the when did the Stanton Yelich fire sale happen in, with regards to selling the team that second time? The Yelich trade would have been before 2018. And, and when they when were they sold? Jeter ownership trade of those guys. Jeter and Sherman immediately held a complete fire sale, attempt to bring the franchise back to profitability, trading away Marcelo Zuna to the Cardinals and Giancarlo Stanton to the Yankees. That's an interesting framing, attempting to bring it back to profitability. So would they have preferred that the old group had sold those guys? I think from a PR perspective, sure, because it's an unpopular thing to do. Trading star players is never a popular Ah, thing to do. So you don't want to buy the Angels and be like, we're trading Trout. Yeah, because then you're the bad guy. Okay, so so my point is just generally that this is a, a weird thing, right? Like, uh, do you want to be like, here we're selling you the Angels with Mike Trout, or do you want to say, here we're selling you Angels without any long-term commitments? I think from a business angle, maybe the one without long-term commitments is is like the way the Soto thing turned out, right? Yep, they traded him. Now they're selling the team, and and they they're selling a bare bones team. Right, and the, the new team doesn't have to come in and trade in a way, array anybody that everyone loves. And they're not committed to $150, $200 million payrolls. They're committed to low payrolls. So then the other thing is you have a new general manager. Now, a new general manager normally wants to win at the beginning. I think often AJ Preller comes in and gets Justin Upton, gets Craig Kimbrell, tries to like, you know, make a splash. We're going to win in, in year one. But I think a new general manager also knows... They have one rebuild in them. There's a few general managers that have managed to do two. <laughs> Usually it's one. Usually have one. And so I think Paramanagian right now is saying, is it time to engage Project Rebuild, give myself, you know, four years? Project Rebuild says trade Otani and trade Trout. I think you also have to consider that if ownership changes the loyalty that the organization has to you. Oh, I may not even evaporates. get one rebuild. Yeah, you might not even have that much time. So you have to consider that. I think you try to win then. You think the new owner probably wants a new GM. Trout and Otani are staying. All right. That's, it's a lot to think about, right? And yeah. <laughs> again, even beyond that, Otani becomes a free agent after 2023 anyway. So we'll see. See how it all plays out. I'm sure it'll be a frequent topic of conversation in the months ahead Uh, some news out of cleveland jose ramirez underwent thumb surgery not surprising he's expected to be ready for the start of spring training for 2023 it was really kind of a tale of two halves right the way he started this season he was in the mvp race and the way he played throughout the second half was more on that good not elite sort of level tailed off a bit and i think the thumb injury was probably a big part of the reason why yeah, his slugging percentage dropped almost 150 points uh, in the second half. You saw it in his exit velocities. Uh, he was definitely hurting. 
it is interesting to me to see these players that are struggling. You see Jesse Winker in Seattle had double surgery, a knee and neck surgery, or is, or is about to undergo those. Um, and I think the I, I went once once went to Carlos Correa and said, you know, hey, you, you've been having a, a tough couple of weeks. And then I looked in the exit velocities and I can see that your exit velocities are down in the last two weeks. Uh, and then I, I noticed there was an injury note for your ankle two weeks ago. And he's like, yeah, dude, you know, not every not every injury shows up in the report, in the daily report, you know, not like you, you guys don't know how hurt we are. And I, and another executive told me that the biggest surprise he had when he got inside baseball was that pitchers are always hurt. So I think that the one reason uh, I never, even as a fan, I never tried to yell at a player or was super mad at a specific player for bad results is there's so much we don't know. You know, and there's so much we don't know about what kind of injuries they're playing through. And, you know, I talked to Trevor May about this this season. He had some real struggles where he got, you know, he had to go and then he had to go on the IL. And he said that he was throwing a split finger that was literally threatening to uh, to pull the bone off. Like he was he had a stress fracture in the he was about to have a stress fracture in, in his um, in his forearm. So, you know that had a lot to do with why he was struggling on the field. And, you know, to some, it might sound like excuses. I get that. Uh, but to me, it sounds like an explanation. You know, part of why Winker was bad this year was he needed ne- knee surgery and neck surgery. <laughs> you know, Part of why Jose Ramirez was only just slightly above average in the second half was he needed thumb surgery. Did you know that Cal Raleigh had a torn thumb UCL and a broken bone in his thumb uh, for the last like three weeks of the season. I knew he had a thumb injury because they talked about his limitations as a switch hitter being able to only really hit, hit from the left side. Walk off Homer, like handle that staff. You know, I'm really proud of you for calling him Cal Raleigh and not calling him Big Dumper. <laughs> I feel like there, you've, you've we, matured. We had, enough, we had enough ass on this show. <laughs> but you're right. Jesse Winker, the other injured Mariners player. I mean, he had such a a strange and and disappointing year where you knew leaving Cincinnati that home runs were coming down. Great American Ballpark is the best ballpark to go hit home runs in right now. Going to Seattle, the ball travels a lot differently there. You were going to see a drop-off of some kind. Instead of a 30-plus home run pace, maybe it was going to be a low 20s home run pace. That was sort of reasonable but we're talking about a guy who lost more than 200 points in slugging percentage year over year. So the park change and even the changes to the baseball, that doesn't explain what happened to Jesse Winker in you know his age 28, 29 season, turned 29 in August. Multiple surgeries, you know, knee and neck surgeries, that explains a lot of the what else was going on with Jesse Winker that we didn't know about. That was the missing piece because I looked at Winker before the trade in Cincinnati and said that he might have been an actual MVP candidate in the National League. I think I think he has that kind of ceiling as a hitter, where he can he can hit for average, he can get to the power enough. He doesn't steal bases, doesn't play great defense, so I think it's always going to be a little bit of an uphill battle. But I think offensively, that's the profile he has, and he was so far from that in year one in Seattle. I was waiting for a reason why, and now we have it. And now I'm here for the 2023 Jesse Winker bounce back tour. 
Yeah, and it's even more complicated than that. There's there's other factors like you're leaving. It's not just like sort of market size, but you're leaving a team that did not have expectations of winning uh, for a long period of time to a team that does. You're you're supposed to be a big part of that, so there's more scrutiny on how you do. So right, so there's more. There's more people saying you're a bum, you know, that sort of deal. And there's more maybe dependence on you to help drive the offense, especially when Mitch Hanniger is hurt, you know. So uh, there's there's that. Then there's there are some reports from Ryan Diva, D- Ryan Divish, who covers the team and is the, in the locker room more often than I am. He's in that clubhouse more than I am. And uh, he was saying uh, that there was some questioning of, of how well he prepared and um, and and how much he cared. Um, but then you throw that into the mix with the injuries and you could totally see a season when you're just bombed, you know, and maybe you aren't preparing enough, but part of that is because you just feel so limited off like offensively and just, you feel limited at the plate and you just feel limited because by these injuries. And so then, then the way of coping with this scrutiny is being like, well, I'm just injured and I can't, I can't deal. You know what I mean? So it's a really complicated decision that Seattle has to come to because they're going to lose Mitch Hanniger unless they, they re-sign him. And they need more offense. And one of the easiest ways for them to get more offense next year is for Jesse Winker to go back to being Jesse Winker. So that that's going to be a, a difficult decision in Seattle this, this offseason. And Corey Brock has an interesting piece about it and, and the different questions that the Mariners face. Great season for them. Uh, really foundational, interesting step forward, some wins, a playoff berth, but they need to take another step and it's going to maybe require some money and maybe some hard choices. Yeah. And I think in, in a lot of ways, you know, what Seattle's trying to do in chasing down Houston in the AL West is not unlike what the Padres have been trying to do in chasing down the Dodgers in the NL West. Like the, the gap between those teams has been so wide for so long that even as you close that gap, you could still be arms reach away from getting to the level that you want to be at to go toe to toe for a division. I think they're going to be there. I think they're going to keep pushing chips in. You know, with Jerry Depoto, anything is possible with the with trades in the offseason. Uh, with Winker, career 270, 374, 463 player. If you get 80 to 90% of that slash line from him next year, that's a big step up from what he gave you in year one. The plate skills were still good. Yeah, the swing decisions were still good. The barrel rate fell and the hard hit rate fell. And I think the injuries can pretty much explain all of it, given that it was more than one. It wasn't just the knee. It wasn't just the neck. It was both in that case. But yeah, definitely check out Corey Brock's uh, stuff on the Mariners because this is a team heading in the right direction. And I think they will have a few difficult decisions to make uh, over the course of the offseason. That is going to do it for this episode of the 3-0 Show. If you want to check out Corey's stuff or all the playoff coverage, everything else we've got going at The Athletic, theathletic.com slash baseball show gets you in the door for a dollar a month for the first six months. You can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Saturday. Enjoy the games this weekend. We've always got the green light here. Green light to-